The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Welcome to another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. And we're joined by an absolute legend in music. Sammy Nestico is an arranger and composer of big band music. He's played trombone with big bands of Tommy Dorsey, Woody Herman, and Gene Krupa, just to name a few. He's arranged and conducted for projects for the likes of Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, Barbara Streisand, Phil Collins, Count Basie. I could keep on going. So, first of all, thank you very much. It's a great honor to have you with us. Sure, I like doing this. <laughs> great. Well, how do you define, for all of our listeners out there, what does it mean to be an arranger of music? A lot of you know, laymen, uh, regular people don't know what an arranger is. I said, do you think uh, Barbara Streisand or Frank Sinatra, I'm sorry about my voice, do you think Frank or Barbara go to the local store and uh, buy the music? They all have their own style. And within that style, they have an idea, the concept of the music, the way they want to adapt music. So now what they do, for instance, Barbara Streisand, everybody sings happy days on here again, you know, real bright. She sings a very slow, happy days. Uh, that tempo, that was her concept, the way she wanted to do that number. So there's nothing out there like that. So she goes to an arranger and you discuss it. I think the whole, I mean, we all know how to write music in the business. So the concept is the most important thing of all. How you want to treat a tune, what attitude you want to give this tune. So uh, that's what an arranger does. You know, with Frank Sinatra, look at the great Nelson Riddle wrote most of his music, and he painted pictures. When I started writing, you know, I was, listening to my favorite people way back. I'm quite old now. And uh, I used to listen to the Glenn Millers and Tommy Dorsey's and, and try to emulate that style. Then I started getting, as I grew older and more efficient, proficient, I should say, I started wanting to do things my way. What do I want to say? I want to paint a picture. Stars fell on Alabama. Right away, you 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 see a picture. There, stars fell. So you want to maybe you want to write some kind of descriptive, well, like W.C. did, or Mozart. You know, truthfully, uh, I'm a classical. I like classical music also. So. You take a tune and you paint a picture with with the lyrics. The lyrics are so important for a vocalist, and you and you don't get in his way. You don't get in the vocalist's way. 
he or she saying, but you enhance what they're doing. That's what an arranger does. He takes the tune that you're singing and writes a special, that's the word, special arrangement of that song that just is you. That's what an arranger does. And how does Sammy Nestico define good music? What makes good music what it is? I, tell you, I remember one time, many years ago, I started teaching at uh, Pierce College here in, um, in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles. And I said to the kids, okay, well, we're going to be playing good music. And the, one of the students raised his hand and said, what do you call good music? Oh, boy, what's that? <laughs> Was that hard to explain what I call good music? Well, there are three elements. There's the melody, harmony, and rhythm. And I think, you know, for instance, today, uh, rhythm is, tops. It's a very, very important. It's the most important important thing in contemporary music, I think. I've always considered melody myself. You know, I'm an old timer. I always considered melody the most important because it has a little bit of harmony in it and it has rhythm in it. Duke Ellington wrote, I'm beginning to see the light. I can hear the chords when I hear the beautiful melody he wrote. It swings, it has great rhythm. And that's what, to, to me, good music has to have those three elements. Maybe one is more important than the other for this particular tune, but it should have melody, harmony, and rhythm that, that, that just fit, you know, that, and that even goes for Mozart, <laughs> you know, you know uh, Beethoven. Boy, I'd like to go in their wastebasket and, take, and look at all the things that they threw away in the wastebasket. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell you, that would be wonderful. <laughs> I think that's it. Yeah, that's what I consider good music. It should have those three ingredients, elements. I have to say, even your name, Sammy Nestico, it has a music to yeah. it. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> you know, the truth is, I knew I never knew I was going to be a musician. I'm just a regular American kid going up playing tag football outside and so on. And I finally got to the age I was going to uh, high school in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And uh, when I went to high school, they said, boy, the, the band here, uh, a couple of the fellas were already in the band in my class, my first class. In high school, I said, oh, I like music. Of course, we all love music, you know. I think I'm going to join the band. I never knew what that would do for me. I'll tell you, it just took my heart. I just 
fell in love so much with music. After two years, I knew what I wanted to be the rest of my life. <laughs> so music is all oh, so beautiful. And I still feel the same way about it. And it, and in two more days, I'm going to be 94. You believe that? I never dreamed I'd live this long. Maybe music has something to do with that. <laughs> it just kept me, my mind busy, and I just love it. You know, I wake up in the morning, and it's in my head, you know. And, and I never realized, but over the years, I progressed and progressed until I could really master a lot of the elements in music and just love it, love doing it. Well, you just mentioned your birth date, so I think that's a good place yeah. to, uh, your birth date, you're a February baby, but if you could kind of tell us about your your early years. Well, growing up in Pittsburgh, I'll tell you what, one one time I was eating breakfast, and my wife said, boy, read this. Read this, Sammy. This sounds like you. And what happened is the great art, uh, movie star, Gene Kelly, dancer, actor, and she said, Gene said, growing up in Pittsburgh, what's his favorite time of his lifetime? And that's why I felt, boy, it was fun. <laughs> it was fun <laughs> in the, uh, you know, I was born in 24. So in the 30s and so on, it was, it was just fun. And growing up and marching in the band, we would march on Memorial Day, you know. And my mom and my sister, they'd be on the sidewalk walking down, watching the band would go into the cemetery, and some politician would give a, a uh, long oration that he thought of great importance. It's <laughs> 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 fun. It was, everything was just up, upbeat. I remember my son, I had three sons, and one of them played football. And he said, we used to look at the band and say, Look at those guys. They're having all the fun. They're getting in the bus and laughing. And, <laughs> and says, we're, we're hurting. I'm getting my ribs broken. <laughs> but it's the truth. It just, it was complete joy. Didn't have any cares, you know. And I just loved growing up there. And then when I got in the band, Oh, boy, did that. I never thought about even writing music. But after about two years, I said, I wonder if I could sit and try to write. You know, I just, I guess it was in me all the time, and I didn't even know it, you know. But I don't consider myself that brilliant or anything. I, I really just think it was the love and the hard work. It was work, you know, sitting there scribbling with a pencil or a pen on paper and trying to compose or write. And at first, everything was so predictable. <laughs> not, not, too, not too good. And it just grew. It, uh, as I, as I listened to the recordings of my favorite artists, the Bing Crosby's, 
the Tommy Dorsey's, the Frank Sinatra's. In those days, that was America's music. That was America's music. You know, there are some things that are real Americana to me. I think cowboys, jazz music, and baseball. <laughs> That's so Americana, you know. And and that was our music in those days, the Glenn Miller. I mean, they played an element of jazz in their music, you know. And it was just joy, complete American joy. Well, tell us about the albums from your early days that made the biggest impression on you. Yeah, well, you know, I never had, I always wanted to. I listened to all the great bands and the recordings, and I played with a couple of the big uh, bands during the uh, swing era. You know, I played with Charlie Barnett, Tommy Dorsey, people like that. Oh, I just fell in love with it. But I never did anything of my own. I never did anything on my own until I got into the, well, let's do it this way. When I became in the United States, when we, when I became 18 years old, Uncle Sam was drafting young men from the army because we were in World War II. I graduated in 1941, and then by 1943, we were in the war, so uh, I never got in a band until then, a military band. It changed my life, you know. After the wars, it was just terrific that the swing era was in full bloom then. I started playing with guys like Tom, Tommy Dorsey. Oh, boy. It was wonderful playing in, in those bands. And I came back and I started teaching. I came back to my home in Pittsburgh. I got a degree, the BS degree at Duquesne University. You know what? I really didn't want to teach. I wanted to play and write. So I taught one, one year and I quit. And that's been, and then I worked at Radio Staff Orchestra in Pittsburgh. It was ABC Staff Orchestra. And in those days, believe it or not, the radio stations subsidized and they had their own orchestra. ADKA, WCAE, WJAS, these stations in Pittsburgh each had their own orchestra. They would put a 15 every day or five days a week. And it was, and it was all free. No commercials. No commercials. Just music. I thought that was wonderful. And I worked at an ABC station for quite a while. Uh, several years, and when they finally, the Taft-Hartley bill in Washington was designed to do away with forcing any station to do anything like that, we the jobs disappeared. So 
Now I said, gee, I'm, I'm, I'm a professional musician and that's what I wanted to do. So I found out that the military had some great musicians, the Air Force, Marine bands, Navy bands. They were great bands, Army band. And there was an opening in, in uh, Washington, D.C. They were starting the Glenn Miller Air Force Band. And I said, boy, I'd like to get down and see if they accept me. At that time, I had started writing. So I went down to Washington and auditioned on the trombone and writing and brought my music with me. And doggone, they, they accepted me. And I grew, I grew there because they had some great organizations. They had a big orchestra, orchestra with all the strings. They had a big concert band, a marching band, a jazz band, combos of music, and it was big in the Air Force. So I became the arranger for the drum metal dance band. They changed that to they renamed the organization the Airmen of Note. And I, after, uh, after three years, I even became the leader. <laughs> I never, I never wanted to be a band leader. All I ever wanted was an arranger. So after a year of that, I said, no, I want to go back to arranging. Let someone else be a leader. And you don't have the, personnel problems and so on, you know. And I really enjoyed writing music. And they had this radio program. Of course, the Air Force is blue. They, the uniforms are blue. They had a program called the Serenade in Blue. And I started writing for that program among my other duties. And things just grew. They just, it was wonderful. When I was in the Air Force, quite a long time, I was working with a fellow from the Marine Band named Bill Jolly. And he was the arranger with the Marine Band. He said, we're going to add an assistant for me. Would you like to come on over to the Marine Band? In the last five years of my 20-year tenure, I went over to the Marine Band. I had never written, you know, for concert band, symphonic band. And there's a lot of colors, a lot of beautiful instruments in a huge band like that. It's about, oh, 70, 80 people. And uh, this is the president's own band. And so I went over and then became the chief arranger for the Marine Band. You know, that's, I'm a, I'm a descendant of John <laughs> Sousa. I'm a, because he was, of course, the famous arranger for the United States Marine Band, the President's Own. They call it the President's Own because it was an act of Congress way back in the, 1700 somewhere. So, so I've had so much experience. Every time you touch a new, a new element there, a new part of music, you're learning. I had orchestra. 
jazz, and now I'm having concert bands. I, I tell you, it was wonderful. Learning is is just, you know, I'd, I'd call the <laughs> I'd call the harpist. How do you do this? How do you? Then I start buying books, then buying scores on the great composers and looking at their work. And little by little, I grew. I have your book. Yeah. It's The Gift of Music. Yeah. I wanted you to tell us, what was the experience like for you in telling your life story? I'll tell you, I always wanted to do that. And I, I, what do I know about writing a book? But I got my thesaurus out, and I could remember all these incidents, you know, having written for John Kennedy, President Kennedy, and all those different experiences. I really said, I want to put this down to have somebody just read The Gift of Music, I called it. That was that little legacy book. It's hardback. But then later on, I wrote a, a real thick 450-page hardback on how I write music how to write music. And I think it's the best text in the world. It's not ego talking. I'm not an egotist. But I think it's the best book in the world today. Now, there'll be better ones later. They'll be stepping on my shoulders as I stepped on shoulders, you know, and uh, wrote my book on how to write music. Now, the book you're discussing is the, the legacy, just the story of how my dad came over from at 14 years old. Uh, his mom put him on a boat in Naples, Italy, and sent him to America to a better life, never to see him again. They were poor people, peasants, in Italy, southern Italy, and sent this man over. And I didn't tell you something. I think my dad was the greatest American I've ever known. <laughs> he just, we call him the Yankee Doodle Boy. <laughs> he just loved America, and he talked about how wonderful America was. There was a lot of patriotism in my home. And uh, it, it made my growing up, Pleasant too, playing in the band and marching and <laughs> playing patriotic tunes and things like that. You know, really helped me. And then in in the book I describe uh, going in the army for World War Two and meeting my uh, my wife, a girl, and getting married and living almost fifty years, but she smoked. And lung cancer is ugly. It took her after almost 50 years. And my second wife is just as sweet as she was. So I've been lucky twice. Very lucky. And I like to describe how some of these people that I met after the, after my tenure in the service, the Air Force and Marine bands, I retired, and I said, I want to go to Hollywood, California, because that's where 
the great exodus after the war. People were going out there and uh, working in film industry. So I packed my three sons and I took a look. I took a lot of nerve and courage because I had no work, knew nobody, and went into a, an area with some great musicians. They have so many musicians, even musicians who are wonderful and are out of work. Hmm. So I got out there and started working for Earl Hagen. Now, Earl Hagen had about six television shows. He had uh, Gomer Powell, Mayberry RFD, what else, that girl. He had several shows, and he couldn't handle them all. So he had a staff of writers, and I I was fortunate enough that he hired me, and I started writing for some, some of the sitcoms, you know. And it was, boy, that was really nervous time because <laughs> I, <laughs> I was nervous being around that element, you know, going through the gates to the movie studio and the professionalism where those musicians are so good having never seen the music and just sight read, sight read everything. They sight read all the music at sight. And it was recorded right there and adapted to the film. Boy, what a, what an experience that was. You know, I never really got the, the, um, the contractor, you know, to, to really get way on top, but I did a lot of orchestration. In other words, the composer doesn't have time for the nuts and bolts. So what he does, he sketches it all out on paper, a sketch. It's just uh, uh, maybe a few lines or he may, some of them wrote every note, some of them wrote just a few lines. And then I take that and I take his sketch and I write it on this large sheet of score paper. And on that score paper, Every instrument is listed from the piccolo, flutes, oboes, bass clarinets, all the way down, French horns, trumpets, trombones, and then it gets down into the string family. And I sketch, I take his sketch and write it for the orchestra. And then we go in and he records. I go in and sit next to the podium and just checking everything out that I had written for of his notes. They're his notes originally. I did add some things, you know. Some things you you add percussion to give it some emphasis, you know, for a um, for the picture to enhance the music for the picture. You don't want to get in the way, but that's what I did. And I uh orchestrated well, I, I worked on the color purple with Quincy. Yeah, and uh, the best little whorehouse in Texas. I worked on some some pretty good movies. I worked on a bunch of turkeys. <laughs> they, aren't all, 
they are all great movies. I worked on a bunch of turkeys too, but it was all work and I gave my all. Never, never thought about money. Always thought about quality and it pays off. Good is good. Good is always good. So, and, and as you work with these people, you know, they call you the, if, you know, and the loyalty is there. And if, if you're doing a good job, you know, it's wonderful. And I, I don't know what else I can extend and expand on that. I'll think of some things here as we just, as I'm sorry about my voice, but as we keep talking, I'll think of some things that come up. I know writing for Bing Crosby. Can you imagine? Oh, well. (laughs) You know, I mean, he was the first superstar of the 20th century. And to think that I was writing for Bing Crosby, (laughs) I thought that was wonderful. And then I worked with Quincy a lot. I still am a close friend of Quincy Jones because he had written for Count Basie. And I followed, I was a Count Basie arranger. And uh, the minute I got to Hollywood, he called me. He said, I'm doing a picture with Walter Matthau and Goldie Hawn. I forget the name of the picture right now. He said, "Will you come down? I, I, we're making a, re- a record of the music. Would you come down? I want you to work on the main title. And uh, that's how I met Quincy. And I said, you know, working with God, my God, what a musician. What a, and what a nice, what a nice person. I still get a, a Christmas present every year from Quincy. And we're talking about 1968. So you can imagine wow. how long I, how long I've known him. I've been in every house he's ever lived in. And I really admire him. He's so busy. He doesn't do much writing now, but he is quality. Oh yeah. And to be associated, to think, to be associated, and rather than hold these people in awe, I just became, I just was Sammy, you know, just, uh, we're working. I'm thinking of the, of the product we're working on. And that's, and it, I guess that was the right attitude because boy, I've worked with some great people, Billy May, Billy May was uh, when he wrote for Glenn Miller. He wrote for everybody. He was a genius. And I don't use that word lightly. I worked with two people that I thought were geniuses. <laughs> <laughs> he'd sit down and, and he'd scribble off notes on paper. And so did Billy Byers, another fella. They would just scribble off, no piano, no nothing, just write like you're writing a letter. And I would orchestrate their music. Billy's manuscript was so bad, it was hard to read. (laughs) It looked like scribbling, like chicken scratching. (laughs) But working with these people were just working with the quality 
uh, musicianship like that was just maybe rubbed off a little, you know. I know one thing, when I was working for the great Count Basie from 1967 or 6 until he died in 1984, he rubbed off on me. He was such a wonderful man. <laughs> I'd go to a, a record session, Paul, I'd go to a record session of Basie and and I'd get, I'd say, oh, let's not play this. This is, this is, and I'd start complaining. And he'd say, now just hold on, Basie <laughs> said to me. He'd say, in front of the band, he said, now let's just relax and let good things happen. <laughs> I thought that was great advice, wasn't it? Let's let, relax and let good things happen. And they did. <laughs> he was the greatest jazz band at that time in the world. And I wrote 10, 10 albums for Count Basie. And uh, just working with him and the band, all the stories I they come up, you know. And I put a lot of those in the book. I thought I did a nice job in that book for having never written before. And I didn't want to use a ghost, ghost writer. I wanted to say it in my words because you have a, a way of speaking if you're a musician to communicate, you know. So anyhow, I like that book. Uh, I have two books out there. One is a huge textbook with all two CDs in on the back cover, on the back cover, so that you hear all the examples of the music I'm talking about. So you can look at the music, and that after all, that's the way I really learned. I listened to Frank Sinatra and Nelson Riddle. I listened to Debussy and Ravel, Daphne and Chloe. I listened to Beethoven. So I listened to these people and look at their scores and see. I said, oh, that's how that came out. So beautiful. Uh, that's how he did it, huh? You know, and I would learn from these people. And I applied, I applied all of that to my music as best I could. And that's how I learned my craft. Well, what would you say was the biggest thing you learned from Count Basie? Well, the pocket. In other words, no matter how good the music, you have to have the right tempo. And it doesn't swing. Uh, people think, Syncopation is jazz or swing, but too much syncopation doesn't swing at all. In other words, syncopation is off beats, not on the one, two, three, four, but boom, two, 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 ba 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 ba. That's syncopation. Well, it's too much. So I listen to Basie, and he found the beat. He knew just when to, he, he, I would bring music in and he would adapt it to his style until you'd think he wrote it. 
and it was all my notes. But he used to have that. I, he did a thing called Little Darling that uh, Neil Hefty wrote. Neil Hefty wrote, and basically, let's, basically came to the rehearsal, said, let's try this. It changed the whole complexion. And it's, it became the most popular thing that Hefty did for Basie. But it changed the whole complexion. He had radar in his shoes. <laughs> he, <laughs> he, he could find the beat. One time I was rehearsing the band and we had some mistakes. You know, I had written some mistakes and I stopped the band and said, okay. And I, we spent about five minutes correcting the mistakes. And I spoke into the booth that were recording us. I said, play a little bit of that uh, back, will you? So I can get the same tempo again. And basically said, here it is, Sam. And he snapped his fingers. He had radar in his shoes. <laughs> he knew tempo. I, the, that was the whole thing. He knew how to swing. And he enjoyed, oh God, that he enjoyed music like I do. And he was so sweet. <laughs> what, a, what a sweet man <laughs> he was with much respect we had for him. All the fellows in the band had great respect for the chief. He, he, he played such, well, you hear basic, such sparse figures. Blink, blink, blink. Chong Kong, you know, it put the, it put the right in the right place. We'd play his tune one time and you, he had all those little figures that put in the right place. You know, he was wonderful. And so I think I learned more or less how to swing, how, how to, how to write this thing that it's going to be enjoyed. And he, he used to say, you got to tap your toes. Got to tap your toes. He he knew that that element of music better than anybody. I mean, there were a lot of bands out there, but they didn't all swing. <laughs> In fact, Stan Kenton, Stan didn't want to swing. He he had the the big symphonic type orchestra. Basically, just wanted to swing, and he knew how. And the musicians, oh God, they played as one. That made that band quite unusual because he didn't keep trading people in the band. They were there for a long time and everyone had the same idea. So when they played together, oh God, the dynamics. And that's another thing that I learned from Basie. I learned to whisper or explode, you know, so soft that, that it, you perch your ear up or explode. And I used to use a trick that I learned <laughs> when he, when I really wanted the band to sound huge, real big, I went down to just piano solos, 
Basie playing piano with the rhythm, and then the brass would come in. Pow! <laughs> so loud and so big. It sounded much bigger because there was nothing in front of it but rhythm playing. And then when the band came in, they exploded. And that's what Basie did. The, the element of the expression to play so quiet and so, and a lot of bands lose that. They just have a hard time playing quiet. They play loud. Everything is loud. But not so with Bill Basie. He had, he had that element of dynamic element that was explosive. And you wonder how he got it. It's, he played so sweet and quiet, you know. The whole band would whisper and then explode. I think I learned that also from John. And I loved that. <laughs> so <laughs> I learned that from and I used it. Another great artist that you were mentioning earlier, Quincy Jones. Yeah. And yeah. the album I want to talk about, the very last solo album that Frank Sinatra did, a great album, L.A. is My Lady, or you did... Oh, yeah. Uh, I worked on that. Yeah, he, uh, Quincy produced that, and he uh, he gave everybody one or two tunes. Uh, he gave me half the album, five tunes. I wasn't as happy with my music on that as I was earlier, because uh, uh, I didn't think that I approached that right. But I love Sinatra, so I listened to a lot of Sinatra records. And uh, Quincy on that, I called Quincy one time and said, I have a tag ending here. What do you think I should do? See, normally I talk to the, uh, the, the uh, star, the singer, and like Tony Tennille, I'll call up and say, Tony, I have this ending I want to write. What do you think? Can you, do you like this? Do, do you want something different, you know? Well, I call Quincy and he'd say, well, just put a little cinnamon on it. What the hell is cinnamon? <laughs> uh, just put a little garlic salt on it. Well, I, you know, I know what he means now that I've been with him a while. But I I wasn't sure and but I did write a couple of nice things there. That was a it was a nice album. Quincy wanted to produce that and I think he recorded it in New York and then came back to Hollywood. I never went to this this session. No. I went to an earlier Sinatra session with Don Costa. I orchestrated. But this one, he came back to Hollywood, and they, I think they may have changed some keys for Frank. Anyhow, that were, that's how that all developed. I think he recorded it elsewhere and then came back to California. But I did work on that tune, on that album, and I had a couple of nice, nice tunes. And the first time you worked with Sinatra, it was on the song "My Way." Is that correct? Yeah, it was on. It was on. I think it was an album called "My Way." 
Don Costa was his arranger. I was new, fairly new in time. I've been in time just a, a couple of years or so. And you know, I never had worked with another arranger. So I was so surprised. I said, gee, the great Don Costa, he, he does exactly like I do. <laughs> he, he'd be writing, he'd get a little tired and lay down for, on the couch for a little bit, then he'd jump up and start writing. And I, my wife used to say, I can't believe you. That's the way you do it. I said, yeah, I get a little tired. Then I lay down and think about it and then jump up and start writing again. And I start working with Don. And I said, oh, my God, these are like Don's notes. And I orchestrated it for as Frank Sinatra on that album. I don't remember much about that album, but I remember I was his orchestrator. And I, I don't even remember what studio. It wasn't Capitol. I did most of my work at Capitol. I forget what studio it was, but I remember some of the great musicians on that album and uh, meeting Frank for the first time personally was nice. I didn't ever, I was never real familiar, you know, with Frank. I was never a friend or anything, but I did work on a couple of his albums. In addition to your work as an arranger, something else, you have a few songwriting credits where you worked with a lyricist. Yeah, I'm, yeah no, I'm, not, I'm not much of a songwriter, but, you know, some tunes. I remember I was doing this thing for Bing Crosby, and Sonny Burke was the producer and engineer. He had done work with Frank Sinatra, and he had his own studio. And he wanted he uh, he he liked one of the tunes I wrote called "Have a Nice Day." He said, "I'll tell you what, I know Johnny Mercer. I can get the great Johnny Mercer to write lyrics to your tune if you give me half of the tune." I said, "Oh yeah, that would be great." That would be great. So, Have a Nice Day, Johnny Mercer wrote lyrics to. Then I wrote another tune specifically. And I, what did he call that tune? Uh, oh, I forget. <laughs> so I had a couple tunes on Bing's album that I composed. I thought that was wonderful. I never asked any singer to do any of my tunes. I never imposed my my uh, self on anyone but on that album we worked together and i wrote two or three tunes that were original that bing sang that was a, a little disappointment in that i remember when i worked with don costa in those days there was no special booth for the singer today the singers or artists solos, they go in a booth in which other instruments aren't leaking sound into the booth. So the booth is separate from the band. And and But there was no such thing in those days. Frank stood in front of the drummer, put his hand over one ear, 
and just sang. Boy, the excitement that caused. Bing, when I was doing the basic things, he was in the booth with the engineer, but never sang. I couldn't understand what was happening, but what he did is he took my tracks home with him and went to a studio and overdubbed his voice. And as wonderful as it is, it's not, it doesn't create the excitement that, that the singer sing with the band, the band's kicking and, do, and doing some great things, you know, and I think it excites the band, excites the singer, and I think it's better when you're doing that than overdubbing. So I, I, I think we lost something in overdubbing, but it's uh, cleaner, you know, you're not worried about mistakes or balance. It's easy to balance because the engineer has a singer that's separate and the orchestra that's separate. So the engineer knows how to dial that down, dial the orchestra down so you can hear the lyrics or whatever. It's cleaner. But I like the excitement of, you know, the, the singer in front of the band and the drums, drums kicking it, you know, and turning the heat on. But uh, that's, that's how I, uh, I looked at music, you know. Now, when I was doing my own albums, we used the booth for uh, soloists. That's nice because it made it cleaner. But he's playing with the band at the same time. He didn't come in hours later and play. Now, with a synthesizer, yes, I did overdub some synthesized songs. Synthesizers are wonderful. I don't want my whole album electronic. You know, I like the synthesizer has a shower of many colors and they can dress up your, your, your music so beautifully. But I like to use him as a, as an add on to dress up and uh, put new fresh colors or tones in your music. But I didn't like complete electronic synthesized sound. That's just my own opinion, you know, that's just the way everybody that writes uh, thinks differently, you know. And that's the way I approach all my music. I, I like the pure sound of a violin moving air. I didn't want electronic violin. Uh, although I've used both, by the way. But electronic uh, doesn't move air like a real violin or a trumpet or whatever. It moves air. I love that song. I can hear the difference. Thank you. Something that I think about a lot when I'm in yeah. Athens, Georgia, is I think about the fact yeah. that you spent some time there because I'm not far from there, and so I visit Athens sometimes. Oh, I love that. I love Georgia. <laughs> I went there for one year. I'll tell you what I did. I went to all my friends at Universal and so on, and they gave me music to bring. 
I said, I'm going to have a Hollywood-style orchestra. It's not going to be a symphony orchestra, a hundred pieces, but I'll have 50, 60 musicians, and I want to bring some music that I wrote, and I want to bring the stuff I wrote for, the music I wrote for the Boston pop, Pops. You know, I had written some music for them quite a bit. And I want to bring these for these students who have, uh, they're not as sophisticated there as Hollywood because these students are around the great studio musicians. So these students are a little blasé here. But you go to Georgia and it's wonderful. I'm bringing this music, the markings that the musicians made over the notes, you know, right from the original studio, the original score and the original parts where a musician would mark how to play, you know, his part. And I brought those. I said, when I bring those there, those young students are going to love this class. I'm going to have a class. And they gave me a class at night a couple of nights a week with the orchestra. And, oh, God, we played some good things. I, I played Jurassic Park and <laughs> all of these wonderful Dave, uh, what else, some great Western things. I forget some of the tunes, but, oh, there was some great Hollywood music that I brought with with me. And the students were just, Wonderful. Now, these are not all kids. Some of them were on their doctor's degree. Some of them were 30, in their 30, 35 years old, you know. And uh, we gave a couple concerts there that were just fabulous. So I, I forget what question you asked me. I think I drifted a little bit. But when I was in Georgia, I love, I love the idea. And Georgia's the school itself is a very prestigious school. It had a beautiful music department, nice studios. And then I taught through the day. I taught out of my book. That book I told you was 450 pages. It was a huge book with all the examples that I could render from some of my works, and I recorded most of it in Hollywood. So when I got there, we I could play these things for them, and then put the music up. This is where I want it. This is this is the music you're looking at. Follow it, and follow along as I play the recording. And gee, it came out great. We we did a concert. We did a concert of all Hollywood music and some of my Boston pop music. And I remember saying, we did uh, Jurassic Park, things like that. And there was John Williams. Oh, my God, how wonderful can, can I get, you know? And I remember the concert was coming to a close, and I announced, I told stories about these Henry Mancini and all of these great writers and the music. I told stories to the audience. So I walked up to the microphone for the last tune and I 
I said, you know, you're not going to, this next piece of music isn't in the way up there with the quality of some of the things you've heard this evening. But on the way home, this is the one you're going to be humming and singing all the way home. <laughs> and I went into Rocky. Boom. And I went into that Rocky thing that was real contagious. <laughs> and boy, the band sounded good. That place just rocked with that. And I thought that was a, a good, I bet they did go singing that, you know. That <laughs> was Bill Conti wrote that. For the uh, movie Rocky, you know, what a oh, the bass! It, it was contemporary and old at the same time, but that was a good, good statement. Anyhow, that that was a wonderful concert. But I have to be honest with you. I've worked in high school when I first got my degree. You know, then I worked at junior college. Then I finally worked at the universe that was a Pierce Junior College. Then I went to a great university, the University of Georgia. And no matter where you go <laughs> in the music, educational music, I don't know why this is, but, but it happens. I, I was never completely happy because it's, the, uh, there were people who have their own ideas about things. And I had some people who were very reluctant. Anyhow, I was playing Hollywood music, and they, like Beethoven, and, uh, you know, they were all classical teachers there. Some of them had a hard time giving me string players. So I went to rehearsal sometimes. I needed 20 strings, 25 strings, and I went to rehearsals with my orchestra with three strings. Could you imagine playing Jurassic Park with three strings? I mean, it was awful. But I got the strings on a Saturday, and I was going to give a concert I think it was on a Monday night or Tuesday night, and I practiced with a big string section. I gave a wonderful concert, wonderful. The politics of people not cooperating hurt a little, you know. I said, I don't want to do this anymore. And I came back after one year to do my Quincy Jones, seeing Sammy. Basie and Beyond album. And then on, I wrote 14 albums here in Hollywood. I left the university. and uh, But I love Georgia. <laughs> a lot. You have a birthday coming up in a couple of days now. And I'm hoping you can tell us, what have you learned is most important in life? I think... Attitude. Attitude. It helps you get through the low spots. Recently, unfortunately, 
I was watching a ball game on TV, and I said to my wife, this, this happened a month ago. Surely, I lost the sight of my eye, one eye. That's a blow. That's a big blow in your life. But you know what? I've always had a good attitude. And when bad things happen, I think how lucky I am to have that good eye. <laughs> you know, I, I think my attitude has helped me through good and bad times. Good times, you can, you know, you can get too far up. And attitude helps me. And I tell that there was a, I went to uh, Florida, Miami a couple of years ago from the last clinic I've ever given. And there's a young student there that played saxophone with the orchestra. And I said, you are terrific. You are really some, be nice, be nice. Don't forget, you know, don't get full of yourself. Be nice. And I think all of that helps. One fellow said, you know, Sammy, we'd go in the studio. I recorded a lot of recordings with you. And we go in the studio and these directors, they're the, up there with the baton and they're stiff and they're the boss. When we went in the studio with you, all we saw was your big smile and you were one of us. <laughs> you were one of us. You just enjoyed it like we did. And he said that rubbed off on us and the attitude, you know, was good. I love that. I love that. I had some of the greatest musicians. They say, Sammy, I can give you this. Listen to this. I said, oh, yeah, leave that. Put, do that. Do that. <laughs> You're making me look good. <laughs> the better the musicians, the more they want to help and play. You know, let's do this over again. I think we can do it better. You know, so I learned, I think attitude helps you, even though that's not music now. That's just attitude about anything, about my eye, about the music, about the low life, the highlight, highlights of my life. You know, it, it all helped me. I don't know how I, maybe that's innate. You know, I don't know how that, how I got that, but I learned that early. And I've been around people with Tony Tennille is a woman like that. I worked with Tony Tennille. She was with Captain and Tennille. She won uh, Grammy Awards and so on. And I just loved her. My wife said, you're joined at the heart with Tony. You you think musically like she does. And she has a great attitude. Never complains. She just sit there, stand there and sing with the symphony orchestra and confident. And I think her attitude, things like that, they rubbed off on me. I thought Basie had a wonderful attitude. Relax, Sammy, and let good things happen. You know, I love that. Hmm. I hope I've really gave you a part of me that, that makes me Sammy. I remember the publisher, when I published my book, the first edition of my book, I went through a publisher. He said, 
We don't want to know how to write music. We want to know how Sammy writes music. Uh, I think that's a good thing, you know, and that's attitude again, you know. Everything is how I enjoy, how I love it, how I you know, just, I love music. When I go and do a clinic, when I used to do these clinics with the little kids, I'd look down and I'd say, whether a boy or a girl, I'd say, that's little Sammy. That's little Sammy. That's Sammy when I was a kid and just fell in love with music. And this little boy or girl is just like me. They're falling in love with the music, just like I did. So motivate them, Sammy. Make them so happy to be playing, to be a part of the band. One one note in the chord. <laughs> and I think that all rubs off, you know. I was happy to do that. I, I, I'm, I'm sure glad that we we had a chance to, to discuss these things because they're not on the paper. Yeah. They're not all on the music paper. It's part of the the charm. I remember going in the, I remember going to the doctor's office and uh, he said you mentioned that you had to work two in the morning. I said, oh yeah, what happened is the next morning they want the music. So I'm working up to about midnight, one o'clock, two o'clock, I call the copyist. Now the copyist takes my score paper and he he extracts each part off that paper. So the next morning, all the music's ready for the musicians. As they pour into the studio, there's the copyist there with all the music. It's all printed out beautifully. He has a staff to do that because it's so much work. Well, that's part of the charm of the music. I don't like no way to working till two with a lot of stress that I have to get this music out. But it's part of the business. I, that doctor couldn't understand. I guess he went home at four o'clock every day. He couldn't understand that. I said, yes, I know, but, but I accept that. I accept that as part of the business. I don't particularly want to be under stress. I remember writing the, the, uh, Pat Williams would give me some music. We were working on Mary Tyler Moore. And uh, what were the other ones? She had four shows. Lou Grant. What were the other shows there? Anyhow, I remember Pat writing the music going into the studio. And I still have a lot of music from his sketches to write. And um, the copies is coming, picking up pages of my work as he's recording. You know, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's when you, you, uh, go for the roll aids, <laughs> you know, because a lot of stress, but it's part of the business. What are you going to do? It's always feast or famine, too much work or no work. So it's part of the business. And all of that is attitude. You know, uh, are you going to fall apart? Or are you going to, have a good attitude about 
the, you know, about your work. And you can't put attitude on paper, just notes. Yeah, that's my idea. I hope I've been helpful. Anybody listening? Absolutely. Absolutely. For anybody listening, in closing, what would you say to our audience? Oh, what a wonderful world. What a wonderful life music brings into all of our lives. I I have a book of the great composers, and some of them didn't have happy lives, you know, but I like reading about them. Because even though there were 200 years ago to read about Schumann and Bach, Beethoven, Tchaikovsky, oh, what beautiful melodies. Where did those melodies come from that are so gorgeous and fill my heart with joy? So the joy of music is just, it's made my life so rich. When I die, no one should feel sorry for me. I've had a great life. And being American, in America, you have great opportunities. Who would think that little kid living in, I I was in an alley work, and I was on a dirt street in Pittsburgh. Who would think that someday I would have written for all these marvelous, celebrities, and oh, what a joy my life has been. And you know the nice thing? I have recordings to enjoy it all over again, which makes which makes it nice, too. And that's the joy of music. It's, just, it's a gift. It's a gift from God. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for hearing me out. I, I'm sorry about my voice. But I think I gave you my heart. Thank you. Thank you very much. You take care, buddy. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. One more thing. Okay. Happy birthday to you. (laughs) Happy birthday. (laughs) Happy birthday. To me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Can you imagine at 94, I'm doing pretty good. You sound great. I'm really doing, yeah, I still walk every day that I can, you know, and I'm doing very well. I don't know, it must be (laughs) the music and all the fruit I eat. I love fruit. (laughs) So something's keeping me alive and uh, happy. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Have a good one, sir. You too, Paul. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time.